right, welcome back. Um, thank you for joining us once again for Perspectives on Transparency and Peer Review. I'm Michael Cass from J&J Editorial. I am once again joined by my panel, uh, Tom Lang of Tom Lang Communications and Training International. Tom, thanks for being here. Glad to be here. I'm also joined by Allison Leung, Editorial Manager for PLOS Pathogens and PLOS Neglected Tropical Diseases. Allison, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm also joined by Dr. David B. Resnick of the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences, where he is bioethicist and IRB chair. Dr. Resnick, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. And Dr. Pedro T. Ramirez, uh, who is the Distinguished Professor in Ovarian Cancer Research and Director of Minimally Invasive Surgical Research and Education at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. Dr. Ramirez, thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Michael. Let's jump right in and talk about uh, how we think transparency will benefit the scientific community. I think that we sort of touched on it in our last segment, um, but let's dig in a little more specifically in, in, in starting with um, the author perspective on what do authors really want out of transparent review? And so let's start with uh, Dr. Resnick. As an author, what, what are you looking for um, out of transparency? Well, I, I go back to what we talked about last time. It seems to me that the goal of transparency is, is, is trust. And really, as an author, I think what you need to be able to trust is that the review process is fair and as unbiased as it can be, that, you've, that your, your paper has gotten a fair hearing. And so being transparent and telling authors how the process works and everything is, is very important for establishing that trust and assuring authors they've been treated fairly. Absolutely. Um, I want to throw this over to Allison and, and see what you think about, um, from an author's perspective, what, what do you feel like your authors uh, would want from Transparent Review? Yeah, I mean, I think it's echoing everything that David said. That's exactly right. Um, in addition, I think that they want to know that when they are published and are accepted into a journal, that the other papers that are have also been published are at the same caliber of the work that they've done. And so that's part of like your final product is what you trust and you know that all the decisions that went into every single paper were done fairly and done with rigor. Absolutely. So, so do you feel like um, overall transparency would just help uh, I don't know if I want to use the word, but the help police sort of the way trans or the way peer review is done. Um, so that if it's transparent, then then anytime something goes awry, um, people can call it out and, and we can see it. Does that does that seem like a, a pretty good um, point behind uh, transparency? Anyone? I wouldn't know. I don't know if I would call it policing, but I think that as a journal, you have to have processes in place in order to. Um, address sort of that bad apple scenario. Um, and of course, like every time you're publishing, we publish hundreds of articles a year, we're getting thousands of articles submitted to us, we're having to go through a lot of different scenarios. And so the better, more transparent like processes you have in place, the easier it is to deal with things that come up. Um, for example, like if you're 
making sure that authors are declaring like their conflicting interests and their funding and their financial disclosure, like for the most part, people are doing that honestly. But of course, that process is in place to prevent people from not declaring it and then having research that's out there that you don't realize was funded by like a pharmaceutical company or some other kind of corporation. So those policies are really in place to protect against the bad apples. So it's not policing necessary, necessarily, but I call it a good practice. Yeah, I would, would agree. I think there's two aspects here related to that. One is uh, you want to promote a bias-free process, but the other is if there is bias is to make it visible. And I'm reminded of, of the uh, uh, legal process or a courtroom where you've got two intentionally biased sides, prosecuting and, and defense. And a third party makes the decision, but you don't want that trial to happen in secret. You want those specific points of view, however biased they are, specifically biased, to be brought out to the fullest extent possible. That's the adversarial nature of justice. But transparency is still important even in that adversarial process um, as it should be in science, which, which we expect everybody to, to sort of manage their own biases, um, you know, however well they do that. I think that's a great point uh, about bias because as much as, you know, we'd like to, to make this a completely objective process, I mean, that's, we're still human beings and we're all going to have biases in, in one way or another, but, but really being transparent about those, I think, is, is, is the best way forward. Um, Dr. Resnick, wh what would you say about that as far as having um, people having biases and bringing those into their decision-making process? Um, well, I think part of the problem is that the biases that people have, they're not aware of. They're these subconscious biases. They, they may not, they, they may be theoretically, they, they may have theoretical or other kinds of professional reasons why they don't like a certain type of paper or a certain kind of research. And um, they're, it may show up in their comments. They may not be aware of it. I think it's, it's up to editors to try to, to, to try to figure out what kind of biases the reviewers have and, or may have and, and to try to bring that out. That's why I think the selection of, of reviewers by the editor is a really important part of managing bias because sometimes if, you don't, if you're an editor and you don't really like a paper, you know a, ba a reviewer that's going to give it a negative review. You just assign it to that reviewer and you get a negative review back. And so um, that... That's, that's the kind of thing that can happen, and I think it, it's really hard to make all those sorts of biases transparent because we may not even be aware of them. I think that's a really interesting point. So I want to throw this over to Dr. Ramirez um, and kind of get your perspective on how, how you try to manage bias as, as an editor uh, for your journals. Yes, I think it, it goes back to the point that David was raising with that is absolutely very, very important. I think a lot of the responsibility uh, in the current system that we have has to um, lay in the hands of the uh, editors or the, edi uh, the editor-in-chief or the associate editors um, because very um, accurately, uh, as he said, uh, you know as the editor uh, your reviewers and, and particularly the reviewers on the editorial board. 
um, and you know how they may feel regarding a specific topic. And I think that it, it really would not serve the authors well if, if you have a, a paper uh, that is perhaps on, let's say an example, on robotic surgery, and you send it to three reviewers that are absolutely completely against robotic surgery and they love laparoscopic surgery. By definition, you, you already predetermined the destiny of that manuscript uh, even before it got to, to the reviewers. So I think a lot of that information um, and a lot of that bias ha can, can be impacted upon by the decisions that the editor um, makes in, in sending those those papers out to the to the uh, editorial board or the, or the reviewers. Uh, so I think that's very important. And I think uh, you know going back to the point of the of the element of transparency. Yes, I, I agree that as authors we want the, the the most fair assessment of the manuscript, and we often get frustrated when we see that that hasn't happened uh, reflected in the in the comments of the reviewers, but. Other than, again, explaining the process of how we are going to uh, handle the manuscript, how do you really define transparency to the author? That's a great question, and and kind of brings me to, to one of the points I wanted to hit, which is do you feel like transparency will address editorial bias, or do you feel like Editorial bias is sort of baked in um, as, as far as editors making decisions like, like you mentioned about, you know, who, who they send a review to um, and, and sort of pre prejudging or predefining where like, the fate of this paper, like will transparency actually change the fate of that paper or, or does that just ultimately just ha uh, lie in the hands of the editor? You know, I think it goes back to the question of how do you define transparency. Uh, if you're telling me you're going to identify the reviewers, that's, that's very different than, than just telling me the process and, and the principles that you're going to abide by as a journal. Uh, in other words, you're you know, going to maintain the integrity of, of, the, of the objective and principle and, and try to gear that manuscript towards the reviewers who are in that same field, that's very different than saying this is going to go to Dr. Smith, Dr. Jackson, and Dr. Taylor. Uh, it, that, that's a very different definition of transparency. Well, there's a, a system factor here, too. Um, in the old days, print journals had a limited number of pages. They had articles competed for those pages, and the journal editor had a very specific charge to publish articles of high interest to a specific market. You know, I mean, a journal is like television. It, it makes its money by selling um, uh, an audience to an advertiser. So journal editors had to be very uh, cognizant about what their readers wanted to read about, whether or not they, they were interested in robotics versus uh, laparoscopic surgery. It was the readers, or in theory, the needs of the readers that drove that process. But now that you've got open access journals, which have no specific readership, I mean, it's huge, it's worldwide, but now all you're looking is to, is this paper of a, a quality high enough to get published? Now you've removed that other criteria, which is, you know, interest to uh, a specific, very specific identified market. So that that systems issue, I think, affects uh, the process that we're talking about when we talk about what needs to be made transparent. 
you bring up a really interesting time. I don't know if you meant to, but but since we're talking about transparency, do we think that there is a need for journals to be more transparent about their operations as far as money, where their money comes from and where it goes? Um, do you think that this yeah, is that's, something? That's all in the statement for, for transparency of journals that you can find on the Whammy website, which is, is co-authored by a lot of other important associations, I might add. So yes, that's that's very much um, a factor. Great. And, and Allison, I wanted to know if you had some perspective on this. I know PLOS is pretty open about uh, their finances and things like that. Do you, do you feel like that that is a big uh, component to transparency? Yeah, I think that definitely can be, especially in an open access model where we have article processing charges. It's important for funders and for authors to know where those article process charges are going to. Um, I think because they can be very high, you want to have some kind of, you want to illuminate where all that money is going to. It's not just going into the profits of, you know, the CEO that is being used for innovation. It's being used to build system. It's being used to host all the articles and to produce them and to typeset them. Um, so I think that is an important part, especially now that we have so many open access journals and even with subscription journals, I think that it's important because some of those subscriptions can also be very expensive, even though it doesn't fall on the authors to be having to pay it. Um, it falls on the institutions and it's important for the institutions to know when I'm paying a $3,000 subscription, like what is that actually paying for? Absolutely. I want to um, get Dr. Resnick's perspective as well uh, on transparency. Do you feel like journals have a responsibility to be transparent about um, their finances or, or potential conflicts therein? Uh, yeah, absolutely. But you have to keep in mind that most journals now are, you know, they're run by these large public publishing houses like Springer and, you know, um, you know, Nature Medicine, Nature and, you know, uh, Oxford and Wiley and all these most that's where most journals come from. And so those kind of finances, uh, the editors will not be privy to the most that you will be able to disclose is who the publisher is. Um, they'll have more insight into it when it's published by like a professional association or something when, where, you know, you have more insight into the finances of the organization. Right. I think that's a good point. Yep. There's only so much uh, transparency that's realistically uh, that we can realistically expect. Um, so I want to kind of um, move into talking about societies a little bit since you, since you brought it up. Um, as far as deciding on, on papers to publish, um, and do you feel like it is the prerogative of societies to sometimes just publish what they kind of want because they have a certain uh, point of view or perspective that, um, that they may be pressing forward? Um, so, so could transparency get in the way of, of a, a society potentially pushing an, an idea or perspective? start with uh, Dr. Resnick on this one. Um, well, you know, uh, if, if a society has a certain theoretical point of view, I see no reason why they need to publish certain articles. I mean, we, we've had, there's a few journals that 
I don't know if it's a society concern, but they basically said we will not publish anything sponsored by the tobacco industry, um, even something that might demonstrate, say, some health benefits of nicotine for treating depression or something. Um, they've just made that as a matter of that's their value, that's their stance. Uh, but you could imagine some other situations where a professional society or whoever decided that they just don't publish certain things because they're just opposed to it as a matter of policy or whatever. Right. Yeah, no, I, and I think it sounds like they were pretty uh, open about um, making that policy known, um, which I think does make a lot of sense, but uh, I'm sure not all societies would necessarily want to, to put that in writing if they did have certain uh, perspectives, but... Um, yeah, Tom, did you have any perspective on that? Um, I'm sure you've worked with societies in the past. Do you, do you think about um, sort of a, a, a society with a, a point of view and, and how much transparency they might want uh, versus a, another journal that may not be connected to a society? Well, I'm not sure I can address that question specifically. Uh, quite frankly, what comes to mind is, is a saying that I learned as a... a a young medical technical writer in the 70s, which was that when we clarify the meaning, we sometimes coincidentally reveal it. And that, of course, is the whole purpose of transparency. It's to reveal something that uh, could potentially bias one way or another. So that's not really related to your question. That's just what came up. But I think the, uh, the concept is still there, is that in science, to be science is supposed to be transparent and reproducible and systematic and, and integrated with itself and so forth. And that, um, that transparency is the glue that makes all that possible. And without it, you're back to doing science in the days of Dr. Frankenstein, where it's funded by an individual without ethical overview, oversight, uh, you know, all the, uh, the other things that come along with that kind of, of traditional medieval quote, science, unquote. So um, I, I, I think the point that uh, organizations can have uh, statements saying, yeah, we're not going to fund anything you know, sponsored by the tobacco industry is certainly uh, understandable and acceptable. And again, even if it's not, it's at least transparent. And they're up front and saying, yeah, this is, this is what we do, this is what we don't do. Great. Uh, moving on to a slightly different topic, but but semi-related as far as do readers have the time and inclination to to read reviews um, or, or to read um, into all this transparency? Because yes, I, I completely agree that there is a lot of value in in you know publishing reviews and and, and potentially publishing uh, the authors of those reviews. Um, but I want to know if, if you if you if you all think that. People are going to be reading these. Like, are, are authors going to be digging into, or rather, readers or potential authors while they're doing research, are they going to be digging into these reviews and and trying to to tease out you know, more nuanced points than are in the original research paper? Um, Allison, I, I kind of want to start with you because I know you've uh, done a lot of looking at preprints uh, and, mm -hmm. and potential preprint reviews. And things of that nature. So, so are people doing a lot of of looking at those and also uh, reading them and writing them? Yeah, I think it's a good question. I think there is admittedly a lot of content out there for readers to read right now. Um, I think if we were to move to an open 
review model where the reviews are getting published alongside the articles. Um, maybe most of them wouldn't be read or maybe only some of them would be read, um, but that isn't necessarily a reason not to do it. Um, if it's going back to the question of bias, having those reviews published alongside the article, whether they're signed or not signed, um, could sort of make that bias more visible to the reader and they could see, okay, well, there were split decisions or this person may have been leaning one way or another. And so even if it's not read by every single person who reads the article, it may still be valid to have up alongside the article. Um, it kind of reminds me of a PLOS has a policy where we have all the underlying data for our papers made available. Do most people access the data for those papers? Probably not. Um, is it still the right thing to be doing editorially? We think so. And so even though it's not everyone's using it, it's important for the cases where someone does need to use it, that it's there and it's accessible for them. I think that's a great point. Um, as you said earlier, Allison, it's it's good practice. And, and while it's not necessarily always going to come up or, or even often going to come up, it, occasionally there will mm -hmm. be instances where it'll be nice to have like the data mm -hmm. or the reviews um, just there um, for, for anyone who might want to look into it. Uh, Dr. Ramirez, I, I kind of want to get your perspective on this as, as someone who's uh, about to helm a journal. Um, do you, do you feel like that it is good practice and, and is this something you would be interested in doing on, on one of your journals? I think uh, readers uh, would generally be very interested in the reviews of high impact journals and um, in the reviews of manuscripts that are of high value to the uh, to the field. Uh, in, in other words, uh, going back to the difference between a small retrospective study versus a phase three randomized trial, um, I think that most readers would be very interested in seeing what were the comments that shaped the the final form of that of that manuscript, and uh, and in that sense, I think that there will be a high demand for for that. Um, certainly for low-impact journal, I think that the likelihood of anyone reading reviewers' comments on a, on a, on a journal whose impact factor is very low, uh, that would be much less likely. That makes sense. Um, and I think that's about all the time we have for today's installment, so I want to thank uh, my panelists once again. Um, today we looked at how transparency can benefit the scientific community. Um, so join us again tomorrow uh, when we'll talk about how transparency benefits the public. And remember to visit peerreviewweek.wordpress.com for all your peer review week needs. And so for Tom Lang, Allison Leung, Dr. David Resnick, and Dr. Pedro Ramirez, I'm Michael Casp. See you next time.